The American POTUS Podcast is a 501c3 nonprofit show supported by listener patriots just like you. To help us keep the program going, please join others around the nation by considering a tax-deductible donation. You can make your contribution and see what exciting plans we have for new podcasts and other outreach programs at AmericanPOTUS.org. Thank you for your support, and we hope you enjoy this episode. On this episode of American SCOTUS, we're going behind the closed doors of the highest court in the land. Agree with them or not, the Supreme Court has the ultimate decision power for the most controversial issues in our nation. But how does this integral part of the judicial branch actually work? What happens inside that big, beautiful building on Capitol Hill? From caseload to impeachment hearings to playing basketball, we'll hear all the benefits, challenges, and historic insights from someone who was side-by-side with three different Supreme Court Chief Justices. His personal tales of the high court is on this episode of American SCOTUS. I'm Scott Brunn. With the help of historian Alan Lowe, we're uncovering the justices and their legal decisions that have transformed this country and the world. In each episode, we're joined by the nation's top historians, authors, experts, and others to reveal the most compelling moments from this critical branch of American government. To appreciate the complex history of the Supreme Court, you have to see it from the inside, and we have the man who experienced just that. James Duff worked with three chief justices. He was an aide to Chief Justice Berger. He was an administrative assistant to Chief Justice Rehnquist. And he was twice appointed director of the administrative office of the U.S. courts by Chief Justice Roberts. And now he's the executive director of the Supreme Court Historical Society, which is where we happen to be today. And if all that wasn't enough, he's no slouch on the basketball court. In fact, he was a walk-on for the University of Kentucky basketball team. I didn't even know that was possible. Welcome to American SCOTUS, Jim. Thank you very much, Scott. It's a pleasure to be with you today. Jim, great to see you again. I'll start. I'll just start by saying go Big Blue. We'll go ahead and get that out of the way. <laughs> Thank you, Alan. I'm with you 100%. You know. <laughs> Thanks so much for your hospitality and, and welcoming us here today. Let's step back. After studying at UK and playing basketball there, you went to the University of Edinburgh. Then you came back and served as an aide to Chief Justice Warren Burger. What did you do for the Chief Justice, and what are your thoughts on his legacy? Well, uh, thank you for asking. He was uh, he was a great Chief Justice uh, and, and accomplished uh, a lot administratively, which is an interest that uh, I, I sort of picked up while working in his chambers. I started off doing odd jobs uh, and was a, a, basically a messenger uh, within his chambers. But the job grew over time to sort of paralegal uh, kind of work. We kept track of, as the chief justice, he administered and ran the judicial conferences of the of the justices uh, when they discussed the cases. And so he had more administrative responsibilities in that regard to keep the cases current and and uh, the opinion writing moving and scheduling for within the court and the justices. So I assisted uh, in his chambers uh, in those roles. And then I went to law school at night uh, at Georgetown. And uh, it was a great job to have uh, while going to law school. So I did that for four years, uh, as a matter of fact, uh, before going to Clifford and Warnke as a law clerk. And then uh, launching the legal uh, career from there. Did you ever get to sleep? Sounds like you're a pretty busy guy. <laughs> well, it's a it's a great question because <laughs> I, honestly, after working full time and going to law school at night, uh, just working full time felt like a vacation. So, <laughs> so, uh, what, what was Chief Justice Berger like as a person? Well, he was v- extremely busy, but but he always, he had always had took time uh, for uh, his staff uh, and was good to work for and and with. In those days, the court's caseload was twice as heavy as it is today. And by by that, I mean the cases that they uh, hear in oral argument. The number of petitions uh, for uh, review, or certiorari as it's called, uh, at the court have increased since those years. But the number of cases they decide to uh, hear an oral argument and, and uh, rule on, that number has decreased. In those years, over 160, about 160 cases a year they heard an oral argument. And today, uh, the court hears between 70 and 80, uh, usually, uh, cases a year. 
So he was a very busy man, but uh, I, I, what I admired greatly about uh, his work is how much he initiated administratively for the courts and the court system. And there are so many things that he started, including where we're sitting today in the Supreme Court Historical Society. He founded that in 1974. He established the uh, Institute for Court Management, the National Institute for Corrections, the National College of the Judiciary, the National Center for State Courts down in Williamsburg, Virginia, the State uh, Justice Institute, the American Ends of Court, and as I said, the Supreme Court Historical Society. He was also very active in prison reform. He uh, was ahead of his time in that regard. He, his notion was to convert prisons into what he called factories with fences. And his goal was to develop skills among the prisoners so that once they uh, were released, they had a marketable skill that they could go out and get a, a job and it would cut down on recidivism. So he was, uh, he, he's underestimated, uh, I think, as a chief justice. And uh, I, I hope he, over time, gets more attention for all the things he did uh, for the court system. I think he'll actually be remembered more for that than for, from, uh, than, than as for any particular decisions uh, out of the court. That's quite a legacy in and of itself, for sure. Now, now as you mentioned, you went to uh, law school and, and practiced law, but then you came back to the court in several roles for Chief Justice William Rehnquist. Yes. So you were administrative assistant chief of staff for him. Is yes. That right? what, what were your duties in, in that role? Well, it's that, that office is now called counselor to the Chief Justice. Jeff Manier holds that office under Chief Justice Roberts. The, the uh, responsibilities have, haven't changed considerably uh, between the chiefs, but the name of the position is is uh, different today. But you did serve, uh, I did serve as counselor to, to the chief justice, uh, and as chief of staff, you help uh, the chief justice run the uh, operation of the Supreme Court. You also serve as uh, his interface with the other branches of government, and you help facilitate his oversight of the Judicial Conference of the United States, which is a different conference than uh, the Conference of the Nine Justices within the court. But this uh, Judicial Conference of the United States is a body of 26 federal judges that serves as the uh, sort of board, if you will, of the, of the judicial branch, uh, sets its uh, rules and processes and procedures for uh, operating the branch. And the chief justice presides over that body, uh, and they have two meetings a year, but uh, and many committees uh, of the judicial conference that meet throughout the year. Uh, and those are all composed of federal judges. Uh, the, the, the body of 26 judges, there are 13 chief judges of each circuit. Mm -hmm. And then within those circuits, they pick. Uh, they have uh, thirteen district court judges that also serve. So it's a total of twenty six judges that sit on the judicial conference. He also appointed you executive director for the Judicial Fellows Commission. Yes. What, what is that? That is now called the Supreme Court Fellows Commission. <laughs> the Judicial Fellows Commission was originated also under Chief Justice Berger. Originally, uh, academics, for the most part, into the, the branch that gives them a, a fellowship for a year to work w within the judicial branch. And the idea was to benefit from new ideas out in the academic community and bring them internal uh, to the uh, judicial branch and also to help educate those in academia to uh, when they go back to their schools, as to how the branch actually works, uh, and it's a sort of a, so there are four fellows that are selected every year. Now uh, it's more than just academics; uh, they're drawing from practitioners, uh, former law clerks from the Supreme Court and lower courts. Uh, it's sort of a, a more diverse group of fellows. But uh, it's much like the White House Fellows Program uh, that you're familiar with, I'm sure, Alan. And, and, uh, but it's with, within the uh, uh, judicial branch, and uh, it is called the Supreme Court Fellows Program now. So, you know, we interviewed Evan Thomas on American SCOTUS, 
and talked about Sandra Day O'Connor. And one thing I learned in reading his book is that uh, Rehnquist dated O'Connor at one point. <laughs> Did you know this? It's very interesting little uh, uh, part of the peek into their personal lives. Yes, <laughs> yeah. Can you tell us what uh, Chief Justice Rehnquist was like? He was a wonderful man. I admired him greatly. He was brilliant. He had a photographic memory. He could pull out uh, and recite uh, excerpts from cases and give you the citation to them off the top of his head. But he had a very rare combination of high intellect and common sense. It is rare uh, to see it in one person. And among his many attributes, any one of which would have made a great man, uh, he had them all combined. And uh, I think it, it impact on his uh, a judicial philosophy. He was, I, I remember coming across a letter when I worked in the court that William O. Douglas, who was you know, a different judicial philosophy than Rehnquist, uh, um, Douglas had written to a, a friend of his at I believe it was at, to Princeton, who was a professor at Princeton. And he uh, said that William Rink, the brightest justice I've ever worked with, and Douglas was on the bench for 40-some years, I believe, brightest justice I've ever worked with uh, was Bill Rehnquist, uh, which is a very high compliment coming from, from Douglas. And he was well-liked by uh, his colleagues. And I think that had... <clears throat> a lot to do with the fact that he was a justice before he became chief justice. Mm -hmm. And so he uh, was able to put himself in their shoes very easily, understood the, the viewpoints and perspective of the justices, and it enabled him to interact with them uh, as a colleague in ways that uh, you know may, might not be as familiar or uh, available to others that uh, uh, have held the position. But he was it held in very high regard by his colleagues um, and oh, great to work with. I know he oversaw as chief justice the impeachment trial of yes. President Clinton. It started in 99. Yes. Um, it's been a long time since an impeachment trial at that point. So <laughs> yes, right. how did he handle his duties? How did he approach that? I met with him uh, to go over the preparation uh, for it and we looked back through history, and he had written a book about called Grand Inquests. It was about uh, impeachment trials before the, this uh, presidential impeachment trial. In fact, he had written four books, and, and three of them sort of predated by a little bit current events. Uh, one was a centennial crisis, which had to do with the Hayes-Tilden election, which uh, was the most closely contested election in American history until Bush Gore, right. but he wrote the book before Bush Gore and similarly with grand inquests that he wrote predated the, uh, the Clinton, President Clinton impeachment trial. So he was pretty well versed in the history of impeachments by virtue of his own work on his, on his book. I studied the only other impeachment trial for whatever evidence we could pull uh, of it and um, there wasn't a whole lot that was applicable to current day situations. The rules of evidence didn't uh, uh, pertain back in, in, in the, er, the first impeachment trial of Andrew Johnson. So we had a lot of considerations to uh, go over. But he decided just that the, the two of us and his current group of law clerks could handle whatever um, role he was to perform uh, in the trial. And uh, so I was his counselor during the impeachment trial and sat next to him during all the proceedings over on the, on the floor of the Senate. And then one of the law clerks of, in his chambers, would they would rotate uh, every other day or so. So there were two of us by his side throughout the trial. I was, and I was there uh, every day, but uh, uh, with him. He was given high, very high marks for the way he presided over it, a, a bipartisan uh, praise for, for his, uh, the manner in which he conducted it and ruled on issues that came up uh, before him. The pressure had to be immense. Well, yes, although he wasn't the decision maker in it. Right. You know, he, he presided over – it was immense scrutiny and, and a high public profile, higher than – 
what he probably was used to experiencing at the Supreme Court, even though that's a pretty high profile in the, of itself. But, you know, this was televised and, and uh, had a very broad audience. And it was all, uh, it wasn't rehearsed so much. You know, it was, uh, th there was a lot of spontaneity uh, that you had to uh, handle. But he was, uh, he was superb in the way he managed it. And uh, it, it actually fell in a, a, a good time of year for the Supreme Court's docket because in this January-February time frame, which we're in right now, there is a, re a February recess of the Supreme Court. And so it, it didn't interfere uh, very much at all with the ongoing work of the Supreme Court that he did. And he kept up with it in the breaks uh, uh, in the impeachment trial. And he, uh, the court ended up that term uh, finishing its work in the same time frame that it always does. As you, as you sat there every day, what, what were your main impressions? You were, you were at the center of history well, it, it was a remarkable feeling because you, you realized that you were uh, witnessing hit history and uh, you, you're a part of it. And so there was no problem getting up and go, getting out of rolling out of bed and going to work in the morning. <laughs> you, know, you, 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 you were ready to go uh, every day. And uh, a lot of adrenaline, I think, uh, gets you through those kinds of uh, tasks. But uh, it was an honor. It was, a, it was, and uh, the seriousness of it was um, really quite evident. The one thing I would say uh, about it is, you, you know how the vote came out on it, and it was pretty much party line uh, on, on the vote. Uh, but during deliberations, when the, the they met in executive session, and the television cameras were turned off, and the members of the Senate uh, deliberated. If you closed your eyes, you would not have known which party the senator was from. They were very open and, and uh, candid about, uh, on both sides of the issue. Uh, you know, some Republicans expressed sympathy for the president and his, and his family. Some Democrats were highly critical of the president for what he would was putting everyone through. But then when the cameras came back on, it was everybody, everybody <laughs> went back to their sides. Everybody yeah. went to their... And I, I often wish that, that the American people could have witnessed the deliberations uh, because it was far more thoughtful, I, I would say, than, than uh, just the, you know, the, a political vote. Let's turn to Chief Justice Roberts. He twice named you as Director of the Administrative Office of the United States courts. So first, can you tell us what that organization does? Yes. And I'll, and I'll start also by saying I'm, I'm a great admirer of uh, Chief Justice Roberts. He's doing an excellent job as Chief Justice and uh, is a great leader uh, in, in the country right now when we need leadership of, of the nature that he provides because he's he, he really has foresight and an ability uh, and, and perspective on on the court's role and his role in, in leading the court. And so he, I'm a, a, a big admirer of his. The Administrative Office of the Courts is an organization that was created to run the judicial branch, basically, and also support the Judicial Conference of the United States, which I described earlier, the body of 26 judges. It has within it sort of all three functions of a government, if you will. There is an executive kind of function of the administrative office of the courts that executes the rules and uh, that, that are created uh, within the judicial branch as to its operations. It seeks its budget from the Congress. It, it basically runs the court system. And, and there's a legislative function within it and within the judicial conference of the United States itself because they create the rules and, and some of the processes and procedures under which the branch operates. And then there's a judicial function of it, which is related not only to the judicial branch and its operations itself, but there are issues that come up within the branch that require uh, decisions and uh, employee disputes and so forth that uh, uh, have a judicial element to them and their resolution. So 
It has a very broad range of responsibilities, uh, everything from, as I mentioned, getting its budget to building courthouses to working on the rules of uh, procedure that the courts follow and, and the, all the support work for the 25 committees of the Judicial Conference of the United States. Seems like a huge job. Was that, is that a, did you have a big staff to help you do that? It's, or, a, yeah. it's a big job. There, uh, there are a thousand employees at the administrative office of the courts. And then within the judicial branch as a whole, there are 30,000 employees. That's nationwide, all the district courts and the courts of appeals. So you're overseeing 30 some thousand employees. I mean, if you look at it, but the, the whole judicial branch, it's one whole branch of government. So this may not seem like a, a big comparison, but the budget and the number of employees is about the same as the FBI. Just by comparison to the you know, responsibilities uh, or the scope of a number of people that you're overseeing and um working with. It's it's sort of in that same group of uh, government entities that, uh, but as an entire branch of government, that's pretty small. Let's turn to some of those, those operations of, of the court. What are the paths a case can take to be considered by the Supreme Court? Well, there are, there's, there's original jurisdiction of the court that's in the Constitution and that those are disputes between states that can go directly to the Supreme Court uh, for review. Uh, they usually appoint a special master to deal with the original elements of a case before it ultimately goes to, gets to the justices for resolution. So I don't mean but, to interrupt, Jim. How does, how does the special master work this? Well, the chief ju- the court, I think, through the chief justice's offices, appoint a special master to help them with the— And he or she analyzes the case and— Right, say, and they yeah. take evidence and, mm, and uh, okay. sort of as a lower court might, and then and ultimately the court would decide the, the issue. But most of the cases come—and they're, they're very— few of those, uh, you know, uh, that the, the court has to work with. But most of the cases come up on petitions for certiorari, which I had mentioned earlier. Uh, there are about, these days, about 8,000 petitions a year. They come from lower courts, um, uh, not just uh, federal courts, but some uh, petitions, uh, you know, come out of the state court system as well. The court, uh, as I also mentioned earlier, is only... Uh, hearing about 80 uh, of those uh, petitions a year. So the chances of, uh, by hearing, I mean, actually getting briefing and having oral argument, um, every one of those petitions gets reviewed by the court and a a determination is made as to whether or not the court should take on the the case or should the lower uh, court's decisions just stand or is there a constitutional question that the Supreme Court needs to get involved with uh, that's the, the, the key. A very common uh, way for a petition or, 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 or um, a, a case to get to the Supreme Court is if there is a difference among the circuits on a, a constitutional question or an issue or statutory interpretation, an interpretation of a statute, say state of California interprets uh, a federal statute and applies it in, in I should say the state, but say the Ninth Circuit, uh, in California, interprets a, a federal statute a certain way and applies its opinion in that way. And then from a different circuit, uh, say the Sixth Circuit or the Fifth Circuit, uh, it you, looks at the same statute and um, interprets it differently. So you have competing views of what a federal statute uh, means uh, in the body of law in a country. And so the Supreme Court will take cases like that to resolve the circuit splits uh, on on a view and uh, issue its opinion as to what uh, its interpretation of the statute and how it should be applied. And um, that's, you know, a a major source of uh, the the caseload at at the Supreme Court. And and as I mentioned earlier, just constitutional questions that need resolution. There haven't been as many circuit conflicts uh, in recent years as there were, say, in the Berger years. And there was a lot of speculation as to why that's the case. Um, There are fewer major federal statutes that have come out of Congress uh, in, in recent years that might generate these 
kinds of conflicts. Well, when they decide to take those cases, what are the steps that happen then from right. decision they, to take it to, to the decision? If they grant cert in a case, and it, it doesn't require a majority to grant a, a petition for cert, parties will brief the issues. The justices, law clerks will uh, help with the justices with the uh, uh, memos that uh, uh, summarize the, the briefs, but the justices read the briefs too for, uh, on, on their own. After the briefing, they'll be, uh, they set a date for oral argument. The parties uh, appear before the court. Usually each side gets a half an hour to present their case, and then the court uh, will deliberate. Cases are uh, in oral argument on Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday. Then the court will go into conference and deliberate among itself uh, on the first one is on Wednesday afternoon and the next one is on Friday. Uh, and they'll review the cases that have been argued that week. And then they decide uh, by vote uh, in their conference as to how they're going to rule on it. And if the chief justice is in the majority, of those uh, who uh, are, have des- decided the case, he will either write the opinion or assign it to another justice to write. Uh, if he's not in the majority, if he's a dissenter, he will, um, the, the most senior justice who's in the majority will either write the opinion or assign it to, to be written to another justice in the majority. But the chief's uh, function in that regard is an important one because uh, you're you're building coalitions as to how an opinion uh, might uh, come out and how you can pull together differing viewpoints for a cohesive and hopefully helpful, uh, straightforward guidance to uh, the the public about the decision. That's an important function, and the chief justice has a uh, responsibility within the court to distribute those opinions uh, as fairly as possible. So he's deciding, you know, who's current in their work and he has time to author this opinion. And is this the right justice to author the opinion based on the conversations they've had in conference and where the thinking of the court as a body might come out? So it's, a, it's a, an important role that Chief Justice plays. The, the types of opinions, of course, majority opinion, dissent, uh, what are, are the, you can also be part of the majority but not agree with yes. the, the reasons stated for that, right? Correct. <laughs> yes, there are concurring opinions. And mm-hmm. I think in the Berger years, you probably saw fewer concurring opinions than you do in recent years. And that's a function of the fact that they were hearing 160 cases yes, a year right. and there wasn't as much time to write uh, on each individual case and each justice writing a separate opinion uh, in concurrence with the majority. But uh, because they have fewer, they're taking fewer cases, there's a little more time to write. And some might observe that the opinions that do come out are, are there's been more time that they've had to work on them because there are fewer. And so they're maybe a little uh, clear, transparent, I guess, uh, yeah, of, yeah. of process mm-hmm. that, that, that a case gets. You've um, met a lot of justices on the Supreme Court. What do, what do you think the, the the most important attributes are for a justice? If they're joining the court, what what are those attributes? Well, they're a mix of personalities, but they all have high intellect. I think to be most effective, uh, they're, they're you know a collegial aspect to their approach to to things. The, the courts of, that I've been exposed uh, to and observed have all gotten along very well. That wasn't always the case throughout our history. I mean, there have been uh, courts that uh, have been very, uh, there, was, there was animosity among justices way, you know, a few uh, ge- generations ago. But uh, the courts uh, that I've been, uh, that I've observed have been uh, collegial groups. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and they've spoken publicly about that, that they don't, They've never heard a raised voice in their conferences. And when you think about that, I mean, the kinds of issues that they're asked to resolve and rule on are the kinds of things at the dinner table that families fight over. (laughs) You know, raised voices at the dinner table over some of these issues. And yet these 
nine individuals can meet around a table like we're sitting at and and uh, discuss at a, a at a very high level the most divisive issues of the day and they're being called on and they don't seek these out i should mention that the, the, the court doesn't decide it's going to you know address an issue and just you know i mean the cases have to come to the court so they're being asked to, to to rule on issues that are very hard, and, and there's not consensus on within the other branches of government, uh, and they're getting more and more of these kinds of issues that are you know sort of put to them for resolution. And the one thing I would say about the judicial branch that differentiates it from the other two, and there are a lot of differences, including the life tenure of our judges or federal judges, uh, uh, among other things. But the courts decide cases. They don't kick them down the road or very rarely. Sometimes they'll remand it to the lower court for other considerations or development, but they reach a decision. And uh, they, and so, you know, half the time, uh, there's a winner and a loser usually right, in these cases right, right. and uh, somebody wins and somebody loses, but they decide and they're very hard decisions, uh, but they do it. And the other branches have perfected uh, uh, an ability to uh, you know, avoid the, 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 the toughest uh, of, of the issues, but the courts don't have that luxury. Excluding the current court and its cases and justices, looking back in history, mm-hmm as the head of the Historical Society, who who you say were some of the most impactful justices or some of the most important cases the court has heard in its history? Well, there are a lot, there are a number of, of, of important ones. So I'll, I'll, I'll just give you one who comes from our uh, our uh, Commonwealth of Kentucky. Yes. And, uh, it's where we should start, of course. <laughs> the way you've put the question, Alan, it, it's, uh, you know, decisions that come out of the court, but it's not always the majority decision or opinion that survives in the long run. And so John Marshall Harlan was a lone dissenter in Plessy versus Ferguson. And and, uh, that dissent in that uh, case has had enormous impact on the country over the years and its evolution. And it's uh, ultimately uh, our country's embracing his dissent as the law uh, of the land and the separate but equal provisions in Plessy versus Ferguson have uh, fallen by the wayside thanks to a very, very powerful dissent by John Marshall Harlan in in that case. Uh, And it led to greater uh, strides in equality. We still have a ways to go, but, uh, you know, Brown versus Board of Education and and the the cases in that genre of, of law, you can trace back to a dissenting opinion to John Marshall Harlan. What do you think, looking back at that history, say the past hundred years, what's been the biggest challenge for the court, you think? Well, I think, and it, it exists today. This isn't going away. It's it's, it's independence. And uh, it, it's very crucial element uh, to the functioning of our uh, government that we have an independent judiciary, that it's not subjected to the political pressures from the other branches uh, of government. And so you, you know, you look back historically where, you know, where you know, we saw a court packing uh, plan out of the Roosevelt administration that was uh, thankfully uh, defeated. That resurfaced again, has resurfaced again recently, uh, considerations being given to expanding the court, and it's really politically uh, motivated and, and short-sighted, and I'm hoping it sort of Dissipates and it's uh, um, the attention that uh, uh, had received recently. But maintaining judicial independence is is a, the biggest challenge I see facing the judiciary. And historically, it's been a uh, it's not a. Although you know there are provisions in the Constitution that provide for an independent judiciary that are not guarantees. You've got to. You have to fight it for them. I mean, by fight, I mean you have, you've got to be aware of where the intrusions are coming from. If, if it's le- legislation that would undercut the uh, independence of the branch, or you know other kinds of uh, pressure, political pressures, uh, it's it's very important that we uh, 
recognize those for what they are and uh, keep the courts as independent as we can. Without that dynamic, a republic doesn't work. That's the whole premise. It's very right? Uh, right? important. Yeah. I'll give you a story from the uh, my days at the, when I was at the museum as the CEO and president of the museum, which was a museum down on Pennsylvania Avenue that um, educated the public about our First Amendment rights, freedom of press, freedom of speech, freedom of religion, freedom of association, freedom of, of assembly, freedom to petition the government. And uh, when I was there, it was over Thanksgiving break. We had a visitor from Russia who walked through the museum and he was soaking it all in. And uh, at the end of his visit and his tour, he said, um, you know, we have freedom of speech in Russia too. But the difference is in America, you're free after you speak. <laughs> big difference. Yeah, it's a big difference. And the reason we have it is you have an independent judiciary. So when the legislative branch or the executive branch makes intrusions into freedom of speech or freedom of press or freedom of religion, you uh, all the freedoms that we have under our constitution, you have an independent branch of government that can step in and say, no, you can't pass a law like that because it violates our constitutional rights. And you have to have an independent judiciary that has that power to preserve those liberties. So it's a very crucial part of, as you described, of who we are and the way we work, the way our government is supposed to work. So you're now executive director of the Supreme Court Historical Society. Tell yes. us about the society and, and what you do. Well, I, I mentioned that uh, Warren Chief Justice Berger uh, founded it. The idea was to help educate the public about the importance of an independent judiciary and an independent Supreme Court and its role in history. Uh, we also support uh, the Supreme Court in ways that it can't do for itself in, in historical preservation and acquisitions, if you will, using appropriated money from Congress as its limitations. So if there is a very valuable piece of furniture or whatever from history that would seem out of step with using appropriated funds, taxpayer funds from Congress, we are an independent uh, 501c3 nonprofit organization that uh, we raise money for those kinds of purposes that we can make acquisitions and donate them for the court's use in the beautiful building. It, it keeps everything on an even keel and it doesn't immerse the court into any sort of controversial kinds of acquisitions. So the, we help preserve the history of the institution and we try to help educate uh, the public about how important uh, the court is and uh, its role in our history. You also publish a journal, is that right? We do. We have a, a, a very uh, healthy and, and wonderful journal. I encourage our listeners to subscribe uh, to the society. It's not expensive to become a member, and you get uh, the journal, which is published three times a year. We have a quarterly newsletter that goes out four times a year. But the journal is a compilation of pieces from academia and former uh, judges and uh, uh, occasionally current judges and uh, and justices. There was a wonderful tribute in uh, one of our most recent journals uh, when Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg passed. Uh, Clarence Thomas, Justice Thomas, wrote a beautiful tribute to her and it appeared in our journal. So it's uh, I highly recommended to you. Yes. <laughs> All right, Jim, I have a few questions, okay? There, there may be not as thought-provoking as Alan's, but I have a few questions that I want to know about. So the Supreme Court didn't always meet in the beautiful building up the street from here that we know so well today. Where did the court originally meet, and when was the current building constructed? Well, uh, that's a good question, Scott. The, the, uh, in, in 1789, uh, when the, the judiciary was founded and the country started, the court first operated out of New York City, as did the federal government at that date. And it was in the uh, Merchants um, Building in, in uh, New York. It was there briefly before uh, the court, uh, the government moved to Philadelphia. 
And then uh, in uh, Philadelphia, it was housed in the Independence Hall uh, initially, and then City Hall eventually. And then it went to, uh, after leaving Philadelphia in uh, 1800, uh, the federal government moved to Washington, uh, D.C. But the court did not have its own building early on in our history. And it wasn't until 1935 that it had its own uh, beautiful building, as you've described. Between 1800 and 1935, the court met in the U.S. Capitol building and had about six different locations within the U.S. Capitol building, including the old Senate chamber. When the new Senate chamber was built, the Supreme Court moved into the old Senate chamber for its uh, uh, chambers. But uh, in 19, uh, Chief Justice uh, Taft was very uh, instrumental in uh, getting uh, the court its own building. And uh, it was built, uh, started uh, the building was started, uh, the construction started in, I believe, 1930, 31, that time frame. It was finished and opened in 1935. The entire cost for that beautiful building was nine and a half million dollars. <laughs> and uh, we, when I was- Pretty remarkable. It is remarkable. I, when I was administrative assistant to Chief Justice Rehnquist, uh, we had to, <laughs> it was actually the first building, I think, in Washington that was air conditioned. But the systems were the same since 1935. And then I, I've worked as counsel to the Chief Justice from 1996 to 2000. And the fellow who helped maintain the building and its structure retired and passed away. And uh, so you had, you know, 60 year old structure. And we had to uh, update it because he would put he kept it together with bailing wire and, <laughs> and and duct tape, and nobody else knew how to keep everything going. So we had to revise the revamp the whole um, innards of the building, the electrical and plumbing structure of it, and the cost of the study to do that work cost more than it did to build the entire <laughs> building in 1935. <laughs> so I think, I think it would be over a billion. I did ask, we did ask, what would it cost to build this building today? And I don't know that the public would tolerate it, but it would cost over a billion dollars to build a building like that today. Uh, so speaking of the, of the beautiful building, there is symbolism all over it. Way too much to cover here, but what is your one favorite feature? Do you have a favorite? I was thinking of it last night. I was there for for a, a, a Supreme Court Fellows event, and uh, we're slowly emerging out of the uh, out of the pandemic. But I can't tell you why, because I, I gave it some thought last night, and I, I there's not any one feature, just a, an overwhelming sense of awe and, and majesty in the building, and it's just a combination of all the, you know, the the, the Wood, beautiful woodwork, uh, the inlaid uh, uh, ceilings and the marble. And uh, <clears throat> there's just not one single element. It was a beautiful design by Cass Gilbert. And uh, uh, it's a magnificent monument uh, that the, uh, the public has. Author and historian Evan Thomas was on the show recently sharing some perspective on Sandra Day O'Connor. Yes. He told a story of how Ruth Bader Ginsburg bumped into Sandra Day O'Connor's car while driving into the parking garage. <laughs> so funny, yes. But it's important, I think, to remember that the justices are people. They yes. are human. Yes. So on that line, what features in the building lend themselves to that? For example, is there a pretty good cafeteria? Is there a Starbucks? Is there maybe a Supreme Court basketball team? Uh, well, not, maybe not a, not, a, not a team, but a court. Uh, they have they, oh, they a court in the court. A court, the highest <laughs> yeah. the highest court in the land. <laughs> but, uh, that was converted from old library storage space, uh, and I believe Justice uh, Hugo Black wanted a place to hit tennis balls, so they took some old storage space and sort of converted it into, into a gym. <clears throat> and then Justice White came along and loved basketball um, among all sports, put some basketball hoops in there. And it, there are many more diverse uses for it, an exercise uh, class that Justice O'Connor uh, started. And um, so the employees get to 
uh, use that space. But it wasn't designed as a gymnasium, but it, it serves that, that function. And um, it, it's a small operation. And, and so the, the, the employees and the justices uh, interact and, and get to know each other uh, very well. You know, to be the head of an entire branch of government, it's a very small operation. So we're a digital world more and more every day. What kind of high-tech advancements are being made within this very old institution? Well, you're, you're seeing more use of audio and same time, especially during the pandemic, you, there was uh, live broadcasts and audio broadcasts of the uh, oral arguments at the court. So, And the technologies generally within the court, uh, it's kept pace uh, with you know IT developments. Uh, so what used to be um, a mechanism for circulating opinions. When I started working there, you know, I would carry around drafts of opinions to each of the chambers, you know, the, from chambers to chambers. And now, of course, it's a click on the, yeah. on, 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 the, on the laptop. So they've kept pace with advances, but they are careful about it because it's very important to them to maintain uh, confidentiality of, uh, in their drafts and uh, the, the opinion writing. And while I mentioned earlier, it's a, it's a transparent process, the, the deliberations that go into uh, deciding a case uh, are, uh, in order for them to be candid and, and feel free to communicate openly with each other, there has to be a very careful protection of that process and its confidences uh, to ensure uh, the best final product. Uh, do you, do you think we'll see video coverage in the court at any time? I, I don't think so. Not, not uh, live video. I think it's not as important an element of what they do. And it's, they're not, as they would, some of them have said, they're not in the entertainment business, but uh, they are available by, by audio, the, the, the cases, uh, the arguments, I should say. It occurred to me, Jim, that the justices, they must have a keen sense of history. Have you found that the justices you've worked with have loved history and thought a lot about history? Every one of them. Uh, and it, it, You asked uh, what would be an attribute uh, that they have, and I, th I do think a sense of history is a very important part of it, uh, and they all ha have that. And uh, <clears throat> I'm always so impressed with their knowledge of it. Uh, too, and the, and the things they pull from uh, in their own experiences and their backgrounds and what they've studied. And, and they find information that is obscure. <laughs> and, uh, and, but they, you know, it's at their fingertips that are in, the, in, the, in their minds and uh, just a very impressive. We've been very fortunate as a country to have such an impressive group of people to uh, serve on the Supreme Court. So along that line, my last question, understandably, we all get very caught up in the coverage of specific cases being heard at the Supreme Court on the nightly news, whatever. Can you leave us with your overall thoughts on the importance of the court and what kind of perspective we should all keep in mind today? Well, it, it, as I mentioned earlier, it's been called on to decide some cases that I fr think, frankly, that it would prefer, and, and some of the dissenting opinions might uh, have voiced this, that, that, that the legislative branches take care of, that they, you know, it isn't, you know, their role is more limited uh, in the views of some. On the other hand, uh, if the country were ha to have to wait for the legislative branch to make some of the harder decisions, some of the great progress that we've made in the country, and you can look particularly to, in the civil rights realm, you know, we'd, we'd still be behind. And so the court has, has served a, a very useful function in that way and moving us forward. But it's, it's, it's an institution that moves very, very slowly, very, very carefully, very deliberately by design. And, and, and that's an important element of it. Uh, when it had when it's been called on to weigh in on on some of the more divisive issues in the country, they, uh, what I can vouch for is they give it the most careful, studied uh, deliberation and consideration possible. Now, 
whether nine people should be deciding some of these issues or whether those are best left to uh, the body of elected officials to do. That's, uh, you know, a subject of, of, of debate, I suppose. But the outcomes, uh, I can assure the listeners and the public, have been very carefully uh, thought through and, and with fo- high intellect and focused attention. So that's all very encouraging, and, and the country should be proud of that, I think. And uh, But we have to make sure that there, we maintain the independence of our judicial branch, or that's that can be reduced or eliminated. Well said. Well said. Thank you, Jim, so much for inviting us here. Well, thank Good, you. Terrific uh, insight. Thank you. Well, I've enjoyed it. I hope it's helpful, and uh, thank you for doing this. The Supreme Court Historical Society has a very important mission, teaching the history of the court and showing us how it works, how this vital part of our republic does its job. In our conversation with Jim Duff, I was especially impressed with his knowledge of the specific procedures of the court, how a case moves through the system to resolution. That process can be complicated. It can appear somewhat Byzantine, but each step has a history and a purpose. Jim has been part of the court for a long time, but all of us can and should learn its basics. For one thing, if we want to understand and affect how our country operates, how that machinery the founders put together can and should do its job, then we have to understand the court. It's part of the Troika, the three-part machine that is our fundamental foundation, the judicial, the legislative, and the executive branches. And the second reason to learn about the court is that throughout our history, its decisions have fundamentally affected the life of our nation. Their debates are not theoretical exercises. They deal with real-life issues. If you want to understand why they've ruled in a certain way, you need to understand how the court works and what goes into a decision. Thanks for listening to this episode of the American SCOTUS podcast. We'd like to thank Jim Duff for joining us to talk about the Supreme Court. More information on the Supreme Court Historical Society can be found on americanscotus.org. And we would like to thank all of you that have made a tax-deductible financial contribution to support this podcast. In addition to this show, your generosity helps us develop new groundbreaking podcast shows and revolutionary outreach programs, offering clarity and perspective to today's political conversations. If you'd like to contribute, it's easy. Simply visit americanscotus.org. We appreciate your help. American SCOTUS is produced by American History Studios, graphic design by Prattler Design, and original music score by Jonathan Clark Music. It's our last word from Justice John Marshall, quote, To listen well is as powerful a means of communication and influence as to talk well.